passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. somebody who's new. Uh, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors, and it's great to have you. Here at Crosswinds, we always talk about our mission, which is reaching people with Jesus. And this morning, I'd like to give a special shout out to a, a group of ladies who are trying to help us reach people with Jesus. This fall, we tried something new. We moved our uh, children's, our Sunday morning children education hour from between services to actually have it during services, you know, the kids that, that just left. And one of the reasons we did that is we felt we could reach more kids with Jesus that way. More uh, kids would be able to attend Sunday morning kids education hour. And that definitely proved true. There was a great uptick in the number of kids that were participating. Also, the exciting thing was um, kids are just coming to know and love Jesus Christ better. One of the things I think is pretty neat is when I talk to families who are new at the church, what I consistently hear from them is how grateful they are to that Sunday morning kids' education hour. They love when their kids get age-appropriate teaching. They love during that last song when their kids come running back in those doors, and they're shaking their papers, and they're excited for what they learned. And they love the fact that as mom and dad, they get to sit in the service actually and hear the message in an undistracted way. Right, parents? Sort of nice to get a little break that way. And what I really want to give a shout out to is the ladies who make that possible. Because some of those ladies don't even get a chance to go to Sunday morning worship service because they're busy trying to reach our kids with Jesus Christ on Sunday morning. Isn't that great? They have committed to that. They love kids. So here's my little challenge for you. Especially if you have a kid that participates in Sunday morning kids' worship. After church today, if you see one of those teachers running around, just thank them. Tell them how much you appreciate them in reaching, taking the time to reach kids with Jesus and to help us better as a church reach people with Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, even though it's Palm Sunday, we're going to be continuing in our study of 2 Samuel. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And take out your outlines. We'll begin with a little bit of background. Today is an exciting day. Today in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David will finally be crowned king. Uh, it's been a long time coming. We were in 2 Samuel chapter 4 last week when Ishbosheth was murdered. Ishbosheth was the rival king to David who was in the, the northern kingdom. But with him out of the way, finally there's this opportunity for David to become king over all 12 tribes of Israel. Ishbosheth ruled 11 of those tribes, and, and David ruled one of those tribes in, in Judah. And just to give you an idea of the geographical difference, I ran across this map where I was studying this week, just to show it to you. This shows you uh, David's kingdom in the bottom there, and Ishbosheth's up in the top. And Ishbosheth had a much larger kingdom. Well, what's interesting about this? is David had been declared to be king a long time before this. If you've been with us for the long haul, you remember this. Samuel the prophet, uh, at God's direction, anointed young David as king all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 
Then in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David rose to make a meteoric rise in popularity when he uh, slayed Goliath. But immediately after that, uh, David was incredibly popular. King Saul was filled with jealousy. That jealousy quickly turned to a hate for David. And as we were studying through the second half of 1 Samuel, we saw that Saul took over a dozen attempts at trying to kill David, to get rid of his life. Twice Saul threw his spear at David with the spear lodging in the wall, only missing David's body by would be inches. But is at the end of, um, and David was incredibly discouraged with this. Uh, David even, he ran for his life from all, these, all this time, even hiding among the enemy. And eventually, uh, King Saul died. Then we thought, oh, this is gonna be the final opportunity for David to be king, but it didn't go that way because that began where David became king over the tribe of Judah, what we just talked about. And that kicked off a, a, a dispute between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And that eventually led to two years of full-out civil war. And you say, well, this is just a bunch of history, isn't it? I'm like, no, it's not history, folks. It's actually a lesson for you and me. God had declared his purposes for David, that he would be king, that David would save God's people. And it was a long, weird scary, and even sometimes discouraging path to get there. But here's the point. God kept his promise, didn't he? God was good with his word. And this is where there's a great encouragement for us. As children of God, God has a purpose for your life, and he has a purpose for my life. He has a role for each one of us to play in growing God's kingdom. And I'm sure our purpose in God's kingdom is not going to be nearly as grandiose as David's. David's purpose, God wanted him to be the king over God's people. For you and I, it's a much smaller purpose, but it's an important purpose, and it's a good purpose. Now, no doubt, in your life, just like in mine, there's all kinds of obstacles in that road, isn't there? All kinds of discouragements. Sometimes it's sickness. Sometimes it's trials. There's all kinds of things that would seem to keep us from being able to achieve whatever God's good purpose would be for our lives as well. But here's the good point. If God can keep his purposes and promises to David in spite of all kinds of obstacles and difficulties in his world, God will keep his purposes and promises to you and to me no matter what kind of obstacles and discouragements come into our world. The good plan that God has for your life, for the part that he wants you to play in growing his kingdom will be achieved because God keeps his word. Amen? Now it reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians chapter one. He says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What God has begun in you, he will be faithful to complete in you because he will always keep his word, no matter how impossible it may seem. 
Now, this chapter that we're going to look at, uh, chapter 5, which is David's rise to kingship, it breaks into four sections. I'll just tell you how that breaks apart. The first five verses are really about David's coronation as king. Verses 6 through 10 talk about the capital city for David, which is going to be Jerusalem. Verses 11 through 16 talk about the consolidation of David's kingdom. And finally, verses 17 through 25 talk about the conquests of David's kingdom. So we're just going to break this apart in four sections and work our way through. So let's begin with the coronation of the king. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, the Lord was, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Uh, it says all the people came to David in Hebron. Hebron, by the way, was the southern capital in, in the southern tribe of Judah. And when it says all the people, that does not literally mean all the people. It means all the representatives of the people. The elders came to David. And the reason they finally decided to make him king, in some senses, just in a big picture way, they came to their senses. All of their attempts to recognize another king in their life, to have another leader in their life other than the one that God has ordained for them has proven to be a complete failure. Isn't that true? Abner as a leader didn't work out well for them. Ishbosheth as a leader didn't work out well for them. In fact, choosing a different leader other than the leader that God wants for them was actually a foolish thing to do that always led to disaster in their life. They should have known better than to reject God's king and choose a king of their own. And as I was studying this week, I thought to myself, now isn't that similar to what happens in your life and in my life when we come to Jesus? When we come to Jesus, we have to admit the foolishness, the foolishness of any other king and any other leader we have chosen in our life to make our life about other than Jesus. Maybe for you it was a hobby that was the, the king in your life. Maybe for you it was money that was the king in your life. And when you come to Jesus, it's finally us coming to our senses and saying, God, I just want to admit that every other king I have set up in my heart has led to disaster. Every other king I have chosen for my life is complete foolishness. I need to accept the king that God has chosen for me the only king that is good and faithful to me, and his name is Jesus Christ. You see the parallel there? <laughs> the elders of the northern kingdoms have finally come to their senses. They are going to accept what is God's chosen, chosen king for their good, just like we do as Christians with Jesus. Now, the elders give three reasons why they want David to be their king. Here they are. The first is a relational reason. It says, we are your flesh and blood. Literally, we are your bone and flesh. And there's just an acknowledgement here that going all the way back from the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, the people of Israel are actually one family. They are literally related to one another. 
And it's foolishness, isn't it, to be at war with your own family? Family fighting only destroys family. And in every family conflict, eventually somebody has to say, hey, this is senseless. This is foolishness. We have to stop fighting. We are related to one another. We are not to be fighting together. We should be sticking together. Isn't that the only way to end family conflict? And this is what they're doing. David, we're flesh and blood. Why are we at a, in a civil war with one another? I thought there's some good application here for us as the church. Because isn't it true that each one of us now is related to one another through Jesus Christ? We are brothers and sisters through Jesus. Now, as a church, one thing we always must make sure we focus on doing is sticking together, not fighting together. Isn't it true that many churches find themselves divided? Many churches find themselves in conflict, which is really just a bunch of foolishness. Our focus as a church body is to be reaching people with Jesus, not to be fighting with brothers and sisters in Christ who already know Jesus. Because you can't do both of them at the same time, can you? You can't be reaching people with Jesus if you're bickering with somebody else who already knows Jesus. And we are family, so we stick together. Now, there's another reason that um, the elders give David as to why they want him to be their king. It's an experiential reason. In the past, you led Israel on their military campaigns. In the past, when David, or when, excuse me, Saul was on the throne, you remember if we've been with us through this study of 1 Samuel, that it was actually David who led most of the military campaigns and he led them successfully. David was far more successful than anybody else. They realized that David was their savior. David saved them from the Philistines. David saved them from Goliath. David repeatedly gave them military success. And so they wanted David to be their king because David had a track record of being able to save them from their enemies. Now, isn't there a parallel here between what is happening with the northern kingdom when they're finally recognizing David and they want David to be their king and us as Christians when we ask Jesus to be our king because when we come to Jesus in a similar way we are recognizing Jesus is the only one who can be our savior Jesus is the only one who can defeat the enemies that are against us Jesus is the only one who can defeat Satan Jesus is the only one who can defeat sin and forgive our sin Jesus, as we're going to be celebrating so mightily next week, is the only one who can conquer the greatest defeat of all, which is death. So we, we ask Jesus to be our king. Jesus, we want you to be our king because you're the only one who can be our savior. Very similar to what the northern kingdom is doing right now with David. David, we want you to be our king because you're the only one who can be our savior to save us from the Philistines. But Jesus saves us from things that are much greater than the Philistines, from Satan, sin, and death. Now, finally, they give another reason 
as to why they want David to be the king. And these, by the way, are an order, I think, of descending importance, where this is the greatest reason of all. It's a biblical reason. The Lord said, you shall be shepherd and prince over my people Israel. Long ago, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God had declared that David would be his next chosen king. Everybody has known this for a long time. We saw this. Abner knew this when he was alive and ruling in the northern kingdom. But even though Abner knew God's word and Ishbosheth knew God's word, they were rebelling against God's word, weren't they? Going their own way, doing their own thing. And now, at this point, the leaders in the northern kingdom are saying, we're no longer going to be rebelling against God's word. We're actually going to start believing God's word. God has said, you should be the shepherd of his people. You should be the prince and the leader of his people. We're just going to obey God's word because God wants you to be king. And I thought, here goes another parallel between us when we trust in Jesus as our savior and what was happening to the northern kingdom when they're trusting in David to be their savior. Just as they were finally going to believe God's word instead of rebel against it, isn't that the same thing that we do when we become a Christian? Before we're a Christian, the Bible means nothing to us. It's an old book. It's a dusty book. It's an irrelevant book. And the Bible says something. We try to dismiss God's words but when we become a Christian, there's a decisive change in the way we treat the word of God. Now we start believing God's word. We're hungry for God's word. We trust God's word and we want to obey God's word rather than ignore it. Because when we become a Christian and we want Jesus to be our king, his word becomes our go- the guide and the source and the direction in our life. So those are three reasons why they want David to be their king, which interestingly, many of those reasons just seem to parallel what happens for us when we ask Jesus to be our king. And the story continues in verse three. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And if you've been with us for the long haul, you will notice that this is actually the third time David has been anointed king. First was by Samuel, back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Then he was anointed king over the southern tribe of Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And now here in 2 Samuel chapter 5, he's anointed king over all of the tribes of Israel, which David knew in a long time ago in the past was what God had said would take place. And in my study this week, as I was reading this and trying to imaginatively experience this, I pictured David on his knees with these elders around him as they anointed him and poured oil over his head. And imagine the overwhelming sense of what David felt like at that moment. God said I would be king over the nation. So many times I didn't believe it. So many times I thought it would be impossible There was so much opposition and so much difficulty, but God kept his word. You imagine how overwhelmed David felt in that moment as he was taught in such a powerful way the keeping power of God and his word. 
And then this is where it applies to us. There are so many times we see things in God's word. Don't they seem too good to be true? Don't they seem impossible to be true? Yet I want to encourage you. God keeps his word. God keeps his promises, no matter how impossible they seem. Like, for instance, Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Let it be known, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. My friends, it does not matter what you have done. It does not matter how far you have gone. It doesn't matter how dark you have become, how many times you have rebelled against God. You need to know that God's word is true, that Jesus forgives your sin when you trust in him. Completely and fully and repeatedly It seems too good to be true, but God will keep his word. Believe that, know that, trust that. Or go to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. That seems impossible to believe. Because so many times when we mess up, when we sin again and again, we are filled with guilt. We are filled with shame. It seems like we just wish we could break our past away from us and start again. But through Jesus Christ, you can. Jesus makes you literally into a completely new creation. Not just a patched up old creation. Believe that, folks. That's the truth of God's words. Now we continue in the verses four and five. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel 33 years. So it means he started reigning as a king in Judah at the age of 30, And he reigned for another 40 years total, which means he finished reigning at the age of 70. And that brings us to the next major point of this chapter, which is called a capital for the king. Having become king, he needed a capital city. Before this, he had been reigning in Hebron, which is the capital city of Judah, which is one of the southernmost tribes. He could go up to Gibeah, which is where Saul's old capital city was in the north, but that would all of a sudden favor the northern tribes. So Gibeah and Hebron would either favor one tribe or another. He needed a new place, sort of a middle ground between the tribes to heal the relationship between, among the tribes. Now at this time, there was one remaining independent Canaanite city still in the promised land. This Canaanite city had yet to be conquered by God's people. It was known as the city of the Jebusites. And we later call it the city of Jerusalem. Go ahead and put the little, this is a, what it would look like in a little artist rendition. Now it was situated, by the way, on top of a mountain. The mountain was called Mount Zion. And interestingly, it was located right on the seam between Judah, which was the southern tribe, 
was right on the edge of that. And it was also located on the edge of Benjamin, which was a northern tribe. So it was the perfect location to be right between the two tribes. But this Jebusite city of Jerusalem, at this point in Israel's history, was actually a source of national disgrace. It was the one remaining city that was the symbol of Israelites' failure to finish conquering the promised land. The one city they had never conquered and it had been, remained unconquered for hundreds of years. You may remember that God had given seven Canaanite cities in the promised land to Israel and Israel was to devote them to destruction. And that was because they were extremely wicked people and God did not want their wicked ways spread amongst his people in the promised land. And if you flip back in our Bible to earlier parts of biblical history, you will see that the tribes had tried to conquer this city, but had failed to conquer this city. For instance, if you go back to the book of Judges, we read this. But the people of Benjamin, remember this is the northern tribe that's on the edge of it, did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Didn't conquer it. You go back a little bit earlier to the book of Joshua. We read this. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, that's the southern tribe that borders it, did not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Now the Jebusites, by the way, are often called the inhabitants of the land. That's a very key phrase. When you read the inhabitants of the land in the, in the Old Testament narrative, those are identifying the people that Israel was supposed to wipe out the people that they were supposed to destroy for their sinfulness. Go back even further to the book of Exodus as this whole idea of the promised land is being set up. What do we read? And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give, what is it? The inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. So the Jebusites, like the other inhabitants of the land, were to be destroyed. They were originally to be destroyed for their great sinfulness. And you say, well, what are they like? Let me just tell you, I looked some of this up in preparation for the message. The Jebusites were known for child sacrifice. They were known for witchcraft. They were known for all kinds of sexual perversions and promiscuity. They were known for murder. They were known for death. These are not the kind of guys you'd like in your neighborhood. Understand? Makes clear sense. And for hundreds of years at this point, the Israelites have failed to wipe them out. And they are sort of the permanent symbol of Israel's shame in their inability and failure to finish conquering the promised land. Now, here's where it gets fun. There is one earlier reference to Jerusalem in the books of First and Second Samuel. And it's a very strange thrown-in reference. Let me read it to you. It comes in First Samuel 17, 54. It says, And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. Which Philistine was that? It was Goliath. 
Remember in 1 Samuel 17, David slew Goliath. After he was done, he took this guy's massive head, brought it over to Jerusalem, and said, here, guys, you can have his head. Now you wonder, what is that all about? Here's where it gets fun. God had promised his people would be able to conquer the promised land. God would give his people the victory over the inhabitants of the land if they would only step forward in faith and fight. It didn't matter how great the opposition was against God's people. God would always be faithful to his people and enable them to have this victory. And this theme goes all the way back. Remember the spies that go into the promised land? And 10 of them say, oh, we can't do it because they're too big. But two people had faith and said, if we fight, God will give us the victory. They were Caleb and Joshua. And after 40 years of wilderness wandering, Caleb and Joshua were still alive. Caleb and Joshua went into the promised land and Caleb and Joshua had success in conquering the inhabitants of the land because God had kept his word and was with them. But Joshua didn't finish conquering all the promised land. Fast forward further in history. All of a sudden, there's this young boy named David. And there's this inhabitants of the land who are challenging God's people called the Philistines. And everybody says, we can't beat this massive guy named Goliath except one young boy named David believed God's word and believed God would keep his word. Yes, I can fight against Goliath. God will enable us to have victory in conquering the inhabitants of the land. And guess what he did? God enabled David to have victory, and he conquered Goliath. And David finishes by taking Goliath's head, dropping it off in Jerusalem, and this is essentially what David is saying. Guys, I will be back. I know that Samuel has said that I will be king. And when I am king, I'm going to finish the task that is left undone, conquering the promised land. If God enabled me to conquer the unbeatable giant, God will also enable me to conquer the unbeatable city. God will keep his word. And that is what's about to happen. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, that's that key phrase again, who said to David, oh, you're now not coming here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. So the Jebusites see David and his men, and they just begin to mock at him. They laugh at him like, are you going to conquer this? Nobody's been able to conquer us for hundreds of years. What makes you think that you are different? And boy, he's going to make them eat their words. You know that's coming. The next verse. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. He conquered the unconquerable city, just like he beat the unbeatable giants, because God was faithful to keep his words. Now the next verse gives us a little bit of detail of, of sort of what happened here. David said on that day, 
Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it said, the lame and the blind shall not come into the house. By the way, David does not hate people with handicaps, just so you know. Um, in the future, we'll see that Mephibosheth, who we met last week, who is Saul, or Saul's grandson, remember he's lame, he actually has a, a regular seat at David's own table. So this is nothing personal against people with handicaps. This is David's way of saying, you think all you need is some handicapped people to defend the city? Well, forever people are going to remember that handicapped people <laughs> essentially are, didn't help you in defending the city. Now, how did he do this? It says something to do with this water shaft. And here we get to have a little bit of historical fun. The city of David, as I said to you, is built on top of a mountain. It's named Mount Zion. It's fortified, uh, has big walls around it. Three sides of that city are, are, have sheer cliffs. Makes it very difficult to go up sheer cliffs and then to, on top of that, climb walls. But here's the one vulnerability of the city. It's water supply. The spring of Gihon is actually located outside of the city. So if you saw that uh, map I, or that, that picture, artist rendering of what the city looks like, you'll notice it has sort of an outgrowth on the side of it. That is where the spring is located at. So this, the designers of the city put walls around the spring area and fortified the spring area because they know that's their vulnerable point, water supply for the city. And what they did is they took this spring and they actually tunneled through the rock bringing it underneath the rock of the city. They tunneled down from the top of the city in this mountain. And then in the center, what they have is this thing called, it's, it's known as Warren Shaft. Warren is the name of the archaeologist who discovered it. It's a 45-foot tall, straight up and down, sheer rock hole. Let me go ahead and show you this to you. By the way, you have to go easy on me with this. The only thing I could find that was a good picture of how this works was actually a cartoon. So... Here's my cartoon. That shows you a little bit. The, the spring comes in. There's a deep hole right there. And then that's worn shaft that goes up. And that's how they would get water into the city under time of siege. Now it says that what David says is he attacked the city through the water shaft. Uh, by the way, go ahead and give me the next picture if you could. This is a picture of Warren's shaft. This is 45 feet straight down the hole. So you can see what it is. Somehow, David and his men conquered the outside. They went into this water shaft bottom and they made it up this 45 foot tall um, sheer shaft that was designed as security. Now, this incident we're reading about, it actually is that there's a parallel account of it in the book of 1 Chronicles. And 1 Chronicles adds a little bit more details so it can help us. Let me read this to you from 1 Chronicles 11.6. David said, whoever strikes the Jebusite first shall be chief and commander. And Joab, the son of Zerui, went up first, so he became chief. Joab made it in, Joab somehow made it up this 45-foot-tall rock shaft, which means that if he was an American ninja warrior, he would have instantly won. 
So obviously a very athletic guy, but that is how they were able to take the city from the inside and the water shaft. Now, all of this, by the way, um, I think isn't just looking back in history, but I think there's an element that we can stop and have fun and look forward in history. David conquered Jerusalem and made it his capital city. But after he did this, the lame and the blind were sort of not allowed in his house as a memory of how the lame and the blind were those who mocked David or, so to speak, defended the city. And I don't understand all the details of this. But then I thought to myself, you know, Jesus is our savior. He is our king, but he's better. Because right away what came to mind is he treated the lame and the blind differently, didn't he? What does it say? And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Our king, Jesus, heals the blind and heals the lame. And as David took and conquered the old Jerusalem, Jesus has for us and for you and me something known as the new Jerusalem, which by the way is far better than this old Jerusalem ever could be. Look what the Bible says about the new Jerusalem, where you and I will dwell for all of eternity. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will, make, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. My friends, David is a good king, but Jesus and the new Jerusalem is, he's a far better king, isn't he? Imagine being part of a city where there is no longer any mourning, any crying, or any pain. The story continues. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And I didn't have a good picture of the Milo. Milo is actually a stone-stepped wall on one side of the city, and David didn't just conquer the city, but then he built and expanded the city from that wall forward. And a thought came to mind here. David does not just physically reconfigure Jerusalem when he takes it over, but he completely spiritually transformed Jerusalem when he took it over. Remember, it was the Jebusite city that was known for hundreds of years for child sacrifice. It was known for immorality. It was known for darkness. It was known for wickedness as that city sat there unconquered in the promised land. But David transformed the city. That city goes from being the thorn in Israel's side and the source of wickedness to being the place known for goodness the place known for peace. In fact, Jerusalem literally means the city of peace is what it becomes named. It's the place where the temple is located. It's the place where God himself dwells. What an amazing transformation of a city. And here's where it connected with me. Doesn't that also picture 
the amazing transformation that Jesus has done to you and to me with our human hearts. We started far from God. We loved wickedness. We delighted in godlessness. But Jesus conquered our impenetrable hearts. Jesus set himself as king up over our life. Jesus transformed our hearts. He transformed our inner worlds. Our lives has become the place now that where God dwells. Our lives become a source of knowledge of God in this world as we share about Jesus when we're trying to reach people with Jesus. It doesn't matter how far from God you have run. It doesn't matter how godless of a place your heart and life have become. I want you to know Jesus can conquer the sinfulness of your heart. He can conquer the brokenness of your life and Jesus can completely transform you from a life of sin and loss to a life of God's glory and beauty. Just like David conquered and transformed Jerusalem, Jesus does that in a way that is even far better when it comes to your heart and your life. Amen? Amen. We come to our third point which is known as the consolidation now of David's kingdom. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And isn't this the key of everything? The key to David's success is because God is with him. David realizes that the key to success in his life is because God is in his life. And I thought, what a great lesson for us the key to any success in our life is because who's in our life? Jesus. Jesus is the one who should get all the credit and all the glory. Now, if you're like me and you like watching NCAA wrestlers, there's been some great Christian wrestlers who have won and done some really good things. And as soon as they get in front of the microphone, what do they say? Well, I just want to thank Jesus Christ because they start talking about Jesus because they want to give Jesus all the credit for any success they have in their life not give themselves all the credit for any success they have in their life. What a great application for each one of us. As soon as we have any measure of success in our life, that's an opportunity for us to turn and give God the credit instead of take the credit. That's the way David lived. That's the way we're called to live. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers messengers to David and cedar trees and also carpenters and masons who built David a house. The point of this is David is not just as exalted in becoming famous here in Jerusalem and in Israel, but he's becoming worldwide famous. Hiram, king of Tyre. Tyre is a wealthy city that is 100 miles away from Israel. Yet Hiram, king of Tyre, is sending wood and masons as gifts to David to build a palace for David because God is making his people famous in the world, not just among themselves. Then in verse 12, And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom, notice this, for the sake of his people Israel. Oh, I love this. David realizes that his success as a king is not to bring himself glory. It's not to like pad his resume and build himself up. 
all of the success is so he can better serve God's people. Boy, that's refreshing because that's what good leadership looks like. Don't we wish we saw more of that in our government leaders who as they seem to get more exalted just seem to take more glory to themselves rather than see that exalted position as an opportunity to better serve the people? David gets it right. How incredibly refreshing. But there's a third way that God seems to, at least appears to exalt David, but actually as we're going to see now things change direction. This is actually a sign of trouble. We know if you've been with us for the long haul that in Hebron, David took six wives and had six sons. David is a serial polygamist. We know by looking at God's word that is very clearly not the way God's king should be. That is not the way God's kings were to live. Polygamy is not the way most people lived, by the way, unless if you were a a powerful person like a king, it's the way many people in that culture lived that way. Now, David, here is a man, as we've seen, refuses to bring glory to himself. David has got so many good qualities. He's an excellent leader, but he is not refraining from sexual pleasures that were forbidden by God's word. I'm going to be honest. David has a problem with lust. David has a problem with the wandering eye. Now, look what the Bible says should be the standard for God's kings. Deuteronomy 17, 17, and David knows this. And he, that is the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Yet as soon as we go to the next verse, what do we find David is doing? And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. And after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliadad, and Eliphelet. Well, this is a sign of a serious problem. He's got 11 more kids from who knows how many more wives. And if I'm understanding this correctly, that's just the boys. What about the girls? He took wives and concubines, it says, from Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if this is for sure, but it appears that some of these wives came from Jerusalem, which means they were Canaanite wives in the conquered city, which would mean David would be unequally yoked. Incidentally, this is not the first time he's done that. If you were with us earlier, he took Maka, the daughter of Talmi, king of Geshur, as his wife. Maka is the one who was the mother of Absalom, who caused all kinds of trouble. That was a case of being unequally yoked, and this is exactly what it appears he may be doing all over again. Solomon is, or David is marrying people for their looks and their lust, not their character and their quality. 
And there is a subtle observation here that you would know pretty much if you know Hebrew. You may not see this in the English, but a number of the scholars on this passage point this out. In Hebrew, when you're making a list of names, usually you put with the one that is most prominent and most important first, and then you, the lesser ones go further in the list. Here, all of a sudden, you notice that concubines come before wives. That's weird. It should be the other way around. We learn concubines are sort of the rough equivalent of a mistress, where you have all the sex, but none of the commitment. David is trapped in pursuing lust. This is a hint of his bondage in this area. By the way, you'll notice that more and more women did not satisfy him. More and more women just inflamed more lust for him. Sort of like eating chips and salsa at a Mexican restaurant. You guys know what I'm talking about? You start with, I'm just going to have one. Well, then I'll have two. And before you know it, the chips are gone and you can't even finish your meal. This is a little bit what's happening with David and his lust. David is a great man. David is a godly man. He is a great leader, but in the area of his lusts, he is not under control. He is following the culture. And this is the way David tended to operate. He saw a woman. He allowed himself to lust over that woman, and he would take that woman, either as a concubine or a wife, and it never, never, never was enough. This is setting him up for his ultimate act of failure. Because by the time we get to 2 Samuel 16, a little further in this book, he's going to see a woman named Bathsheba. He's going to take that woman to himself. He's not going to restrain himself, even though she's already married to another man. And then after he impregnates her, he kills her husband. Now you have to understand who her husband is. Her husband will be one of his closest and most loyal men. Talk about betrayal. And it all comes about because he has refused to keep his lusts in check. Folks, this is very practical. Allowing yourself to engage in lust, uncontrolled lust, will eat your lunch and ruin your life. Your life right now may look amazingly good and godly on the outside, just like David's. But you may be hiding lusts that are running out of control on the inside, just like David. And just as you can't see cancer on the inside, but it's destroying you, you can't see lust on the inside, but it will destroy you. Now, we all know stories of great men of God, great godly pastors used in mighty and great ways in God's kingdom. And all of a sudden, they get to the top. And all of a sudden, what happens? Oh, they had this affair and it goes all down. That affair didn't happen all at once. That affair happened because just like David, they had out of control lust running around their heart, directing and controlling their life. Now, if you are somebody who struggles with lust today, let me give you some directions. Number one, you need to begin by calling lust sin. Our world says lust is good, lust is fun, 
The Bible says lust is sin. It says this, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Number two, once you realize lust is sin, you need to confess it to Jesus and repent of it. Jesus, forgive me, because I shouldn't look at that other person lustfully. Number three, you need to run. Three times in the Bible, the Bible tells us to handle sexual temptations by running. Paul says to Timothy, flee sexual immorality. Joseph, what does he do with Potiphar's wife? He runs. You always run from those sexual sins. You don't negotiate with sexual sins because then you talk yourself into sexual sins. The fourth thing I want to tell you to do is this. It's called bounce your eyes. You guys know what bouncing your eyes is? You can't always help the first look because that just happens to come across your eyes. But we can bounce our eyes before we take the second look. That's where sin begins. Literally, think of, do I need to, oh, I just saw this. I need to bounce my eyes away and look someplace else. Because if I keep looking at it, it's going to be just like chips and salsa, right? I want more, and I want more, and it's going to eventually eat my lunch. So, um, that's one of David's huge faults and problems that will eventually destroy him. In the interest of time, I'm going to have to move quickly here. The conquests of David's enemies. We know that the Philistines have been a thorn in Israel's side for quite some time. And what do we read next? When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. This is not good. They know that David has consistently destroyed them and beat them. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. He hid out. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, by the way, which means the valley of the giants. Now let me show you what this valley looks like. It's big. There is a huge amount of Philistines that have come to destroy David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? At least David's asking God for directions. Saul didn't do much of that. And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-perazim, which means breaking through like a flood. You guys remember that tsunami pictures in Japan? That's sort of what it looks like, except they're David's soldiers. (laughs) Then it says this, and the Philistines left their idols there. And David and his men carried them away. And I thought, well, what did they do with them? First Chronicles, the parallel account tells us. And they left their gods there, and David gave command, and they were burned. Oh, that's great. The Philistines are watching, and David takes their gods and turns them into a campfire, and they cook dinner over them and have s'mores. Boy, that sort of makes them irritated. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. At first you don't succeed, try again. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up, but go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. You see, at this point, God is committed to the success. The armies of heaven are fighting with David. 
And David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. By the way, Geba is six miles to the north. Gezer is 20 miles to the west. The point of that is for the first time, the Israelites have decisively and almost completely pushed the Philistines out of the promised lands. Now in this chapter, sorry, Siri. In this chapter, we've seen the rise of David as king. But this week, we are gonna remember the rise of a much greater king, the one known as the son of David, Jesus Christ. David defeated Philistines and David had a capital city named Jerusalem. But Jesus, he defeats our enemies much greater than the Philistines, Satan, sin, and death. And he has a capital city for us called the New Jerusalem where we will dwell for all eternity, which will have no more death, crying, and pain. We look forward to this week celebrating a much greater king than David ever was or ever could be. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word as we see many little snippets of your goodness, of the rise of David as king. You were so faithful to keep your word in spite of all of the challenges and adversities that have come against him, and you'll be faithful to keep your word to us in spite of all the difficulties and challenges that may be in our life. Thank you that we have a king that's much greater than David ever was. Jesus, thank you for having a much greater victory than David ever achieved. And thank you for giving it all to us through your love and through our faith and trust in you. We don't deserve any of it. And all God's people said, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.